So first off, just basic information. When you're talking about Regulation D offerings, there are two types of investors. And really, these investors can really are, are across the SEC kind of regulations for what offerings. Welcome to the Lessons in Real Estate Show, bringing you information directly from industry leaders in multifamily and commercial real estate. Each week, Anthony Pinto interviews top multifamily experts and digs into the hard lessons learned on their pathways to success. We get real to give you a more holistic picture and help you avoid pitfalls others won't tell you about. He will teach you about raising money, growing your portfolio, and attracting investors to your cause. And now your host, Anthony Pinto. Are you in the military, interested, but don't know how to get started in real estate investing? I get it. I was in the exact same boat, but I have good news for you. We have content made just for you. If you head over to our website at pintocapitalinvestments.com, you can hear about how I made the decision to start buying investment properties literally hundreds of feet underwater on a submarine. That's pintocapitalinvestments.com. But you're here for the show, so let's get into it. Hey, learners, and welcome to a, another edition of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I'm your host, Anthony Pinto, and today we are bringing you a, another PCI Teaches that we do every Monday, and we talk about some sort of educational topic related to real estate investing and beginner and advanced topics. And this week, we're going to be talking about the difference between accredited and non-accredited investors. And I think that it is important to understand that when you are, whether you are an active investor or whether you are a passive investor. So let's get into it. So first off, just basic information, when you're talking about Regulation D offerings, there are two types of investors. And really, these investors can really are, are across the SEC kind of regulations for what offerings can be, uh, can be brought up. But these two types of investors are accredited investors and non-accredited investors or sophisticated investors. And what that actually means, we'll get into here later. But I'm a big history buff, and I wanted to get into the history of you know why we have this distinction in the first place, and you know how this has kind of developed over the years. So, if you know your American history, you know you may know that the Great Depression was largely hinged on the stock market that fell in the end of the 1920s. Well, what you may not know is what actually led up to that point. So. The stock market was a relatively new thing in the the 19, early 1900s, and during the 1920s, a lot more people were getting caught up in this stock market craze. And by a lot of people, I mean a lot of people who really had no clue what they were doing and investing. And when you think of, when you kind of think about what was happening back then, think about what was happening in the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. You had a lot of these investors that were getting called up or or offered these securities or this uh, this fund or some sort of option that they could buy into by someone they may not know with this intent that they were going to get huge returns on their money if they only put a certain amount of money down. And that was happening pretty rampantly throughout the 1910s and 1920s. And there were a lot of non-sophisticated investors that were coming on with, you know, essentially their life savings being put into these different offerings and these different funds and stocks. Because that was the craze back then, and there was no real regulation on you know who could do the offering, how much money could actually be invested, any real government regulation at all. And a lot of people, as you can imagine, were getting swindled. There's a lot of 
fraudulent uh, behavior going on at that time, a lot of fraud, a lot of worthless kind of securities and, and swindling being done for the average American person. And that all kind of came down in the end of the 1920s when the stock market fell on Black Tuesday. And the aftermath of what regulations kind of came after that is the stage for the modern SEC regulation. And in 1929, we had the stock market crash. Uh, A few years after that, in 1934, the government and really Congress set up the Securities Exchange Act and created the Securities and Exchange Commission to basically regulate and make sure that what happened with the stock market and uh, and the swindling of Americans, common Americans, didn't happen again. And so a lot of powers were given to the SEC, um, mainly to make sure that what was happening on Wall Street and investments that were occurring were being done in a discreet and upfront manner and with as little fraud as was going on. So one of the first things they did was they put in more disclosures and investors who were creating funds or offering stocks had to have a certain amount of disclosures. And not only that, but have regular reporting to the SEC on what was going on, what they were actually doing and register their security with the SEC. And also SEC also brought forth the ability to uh, provide civil charges against those who were found guilty of fraud and basically allow reparations for any victims that were affected by that said fraud. So basically think of how Ponzi schemes get tried nowadays. And so, and one last thing that they did was set the standards for accredited investors. And for the longest time before the stock market fell and before the SEC came around, a lot of the investors that were really started were individuals who had a lot of money. And how those people got their lot of money was mostly through being businessmen um, or, or through a job that they earned a high net income. But mostly it came from those individuals who had some sort of a business acumen or knew a, or had a background in, in investing or something business related. And that kind of quickly turn, changed up until 1929. But because of that, uh, after the stock market fell, the SEC kind of set these standards for what it means to be an accredited investor and what type of opportunities could be open to accredited versus non-accredited or, or normal Americans, if you want to call it that. And this was really to protect the average in, the average investor from unsafe investments and really to protect investors from themselves. And so there have been a few more, uh, I guess, acts of Congress and regulations that have occurred since then that have put a lot more regulations on what can happen on Wall Street and what can happen you know, in terms of investments. And you're not going to see as much you know, Wolf of Wall Street type of action going on nowadays. But on the establishment of this accredited investor, it severely limited the options available to the average American to be able to invest in the stock market or, or I guess invest in things that are not purely stocks like regulation D offerings like private equity, venture funds, hedge funds, things like that. So that is all to say that that is the history behind why we have accredited investors. Now, what does it mean to actually be a accredited investor? Well, if you look at the Regulation D Rule 501, it actually spells out what an accredited investor is. And there are eight different stipulations for for an organization or an individual to be considered an accredited investor. But there are really only three that we truly care about when we're talking about individuals who could be accredited. 
And those three stipulations are this. One, the individual income is in excess of $200,000 in each of the two most recent years. And they have a reasonable expectation of reaching that same income level in the current year. Or two, the joint income, as in a married couple, is in excess of $300,000 in each of the two most recent years. And again, the same reasonable expectation of reaching the same income level in the current year. Or three, an individual or joint net worth is in excess of $1 million, not to include their primary residence. So if you meet one of those three requirements, you can be considered an accredited investor. Now, you may think that, hey, yo, I I meet that, good, good to go, I'm an accredited investor. Well, there are additional hoops that you have to jump through to truly prove that you are an accredited investor. And one of those hoops, if you're doing a 506C, is to prove your accreditation status. And how that is proven, I guess, is through a, a couple different methods. One, you can have a CPA draw up a letter saying, based off of uh, your financial records and what you provided to them, yes, you do meet that accredited status based off of your holdings and the income that you produce. You can also have a lawyer do the same thing. And then separately, you can. there are accreditation companies that will go out and do you know, credit checks on you, verify your income, your net worth, all of that separately from you having to do it yourself. But that can be a timely and frustrating process. If you've ever talked with any accredited investors, you have had to go through that process. So yes, being an accredited investor is great, but there are maybe additional uh, hoops that you have to jump through to be able to get into some of these offerings, specifically 506C offerings. So that is an accredited investor. Now, what is a non-accredited investor or a sophisticated investor? Well, the SEC understood that there are that the average investor wants to invest in offerings like this outside of the stock market, but there had to be extra kind of stipulations or restrictions on those offerings that could be available to them. And so they made this ruling that there are certain offerings like a 506B offering under Regulation D that could be given to non-accredited investors, but they had to specifically be sophisticated investors. And this is really the only definition of what a sophisticated investor means, according to the SEC. A sophisticated investor must have sufficient knowledge and experience in financial and business matters to make them capable of evaluating the merits and risks of the prospective investment. So, you know, that's that's relatively vague. And so if you are investing in a syndication, does that individual have to have real estate experience? Does having experience in the stock market or you know, having a large portfolio in the stock market or in the financial sector or something like that qualify. Um, that is is a good is a good question, and the SEC hasn't really answered that. It just basically says if you have the knowledge and understanding to be able to judge the merits of this deal, then you should be fine. And as a general partner, if you are bringing on sophisticated non-accredited investors, you should be able to justify that. Right. If you're bringing in your mom as an unaccredited investor and she has no idea what she's doing, she's only investing in you because you're her son or your daughter, her daughter, then you may have a hard time trying to prove the sophisticated investor kind of status. Right. So as long as you can understand what this ruling kind of is and the intent of it, and that, you know, when we offer these these offerings to individuals who are technically considered sophisticated investors or non-accredited investors, that they know enough 
to understand that what they're getting into could potentially lose in their money. And not only that, but that you understand enough about the financials of those individuals to merit that you are not going to be taking their last dollar. So not only on the non-credit status, does the SEC specifically call out the sophisticated investor, but it also calls out having to have a pre-existing substantive relationship. And what that actually means hasn't really fully been put into words by the SEC and both the term pre-existing and substantive relationship. But there are some precedents that has been set for what that actually means. And precedence was set in the early 2000s by a company called uh, Citizen VC Incorporated. And it, long story short, they're essentially an online crowdfunding source for venture capital to be able to provi- be provided to seed companies or early stage kind of emerging growth companies uh, or offerings of that kind of nature to specifically invest in different companies. And they put in a request to the SEC basically saying, hey, if we have this online portal, can that be the start of the pre-existing relationship with those individuals before we actually start offering to them? And the SEC came back with a no action relief letter, which basically says, yes, in response to your request, we say, yes, you're good to go. No further action would need to be done or no further corrections need to be done to further kind of justify your ability to have a pre-existing relationship. Now, that has been defined as being able to have a pre-existing relationship. And depending on who you talk to, and and again, I am not a SEC attorney or anything in regards to that. So take this all with a grain of salt and understand that I'm just showing you facts of different cases and precedents. If you truly want to understand what it means to be a pre-existing substance relationship, you should probably talk to SEC attorney. But as I'm as I'm understanding this precedent setting case that was set up, the pre-existing relationship was established by having an online questionnaire and then proving accreditation status, you know, before giving or before offering that particular deal to an investor. Now, what does it ha- mean to have a substantive relationship? Well, as you since when you have a pre-existing relationship established, now that you've had that first kind of contact. What are some additional actions you can take to make sure you have a substantive relationship? Well, let's let's say that you had someone contact you via email and you've never talked to this person before. What are some additional things you can do to have a substantive relationship? Well, you can set up a phone call with that person offline and and discuss the potential investors' investing experience, their level of sophistication, what their goals are, you know, their risk tolerance, uh, their financial situation as a whole, maybe their family situation, such as that. And really get an idea of who the person is that you're investing. The only intent of having a pre-existing substantive relationship is to make sure that the individual that is potentially investing with you, one, understands what they're getting into, but and two, you as the general partner or the one who is taking that investment, understand that you're not going to be taking their last dollar. And I think that's really important to understand is as a non-accredited investor, but they may not fully understand the risks associated with the investment they're about to invest in, which is why we have PPMs, private placement memorandums and subscription agreements that specifically lay out, yes, you are investing this amount of money, but there are inherent risks associated with investing in real estate or capital markets or whatever that fund happens to be. But the way that you kind of, of wane that and make sure that you are doing right by your investors is making sure that you understand fully who they are. And even if they are a accredited investor, you should still understand who they are as a person and where, what their goals are, what their financial situation is like, 
and make sure that they understand what they are getting themselves into. There should be no assumptions being done when you're trying to make a pre-existing substantive relationship. And um, so having that first kind of intro talk, having follow-up emails, um, some people even talk about a three-touch rule where you have your introductory email that gets sent to you, you have a follow-on phone call, and then you have some sort of maybe face-to-face kind of coffee and you talk more about who they are, who you are, and make sure that everyone has that, that trust built between the two individuals before you actually give them the offering. But you really have to be careful on how, how you lay that out. And again, the SEC is, gives some sort of regulation and precedence for that, but you just need to make sure that you understand that your investors that you're bringing onto this table. So why do we make this distinction? Why does it make a difference if you're a credit or non-credit investor? Well, if you're a credit investor, there's a lot more opportunities for you to generally invest in different things. And that could be hedge funds, that could be private equity, that could be any number of different offerings in terms of syndications and real estate, 506B and 506C offerings. And as an accredited investor, you can generally, you can, as a general thought, be generally solicited to, and that you can be reached out to without having some sort of prior relationship to bring in, uh, to to be brought in on a deal, specifically in a 506C offering. Um, but on the flip side of that, you need to prove some sort of accreditation status with the bank statement, your W-2, some sort of verified letter from a CPA or a lawyer on the accredited side. Now, on a non-accredited side, if you are a non-accredited investor or a sophisticated investor, you can only invest in 506B offerings. And not only that, but you can't have any sort of general solicitation done to you. So I can't make a 506B offering and throw it up on Facebook and expect all of these, you know, my friends and family to jump on board. Now, if you have friends and family that uh, you've already talked to before this and, you know, they want to get in on a deal, then you can offer it to them individually through an email. But you just have to be really careful of how you generally solicit to non-accredited investors because it is it's frankly not allowed. And also with a non-accredited investor, you don't really have to have physical proof of that. You can just put in a... a like in the PPM, I check in the box saying, yes, I am a non-accredited investor. Yes, I am an accredited investor, specifically for 506B offerings. So so the really the difference is, is what kind of offerings are available to you as a accredited or non-accredited investor. But really what you need to get out of this talk is what it means to be an accredited investor. And again, those three points are, if singly you make $200,000, jointly you make $300,000, or you have a, a network in net worth in excess of a million dollars, not including your primary residence. So knowing that you can understand what your status is, you can understand what type of offerings you can get into. And you can understand from the active partner side, what you have to do to bring in those types of investors. So kind of a, a lengthy topper topic for today, but I hope you've got something out of this. Again, I am not an SEC attorney or related to the SEC in any sort of manner. This is merely research I've done myself and my own understanding of what it means to be a credit and non-accredited investor. If you want more information on how to approach the situations, there are plenty of SEC attorneys out there that can talk to you about this. Or you can reach out to me and I can point you in the right direction. But as always, I hope you have enjoyed this PCI Teaches and the Lessons Real Estate show. Look forward to talking to you guys again on Friday. Take care. One more thing before we go. I want to be real for a second. If you are enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It goes a long way to promoting the show and continuing to bring you great content from stellar guests. 
I read every rating and it helps me develop the best practices and give you the best possible version of me and the show. If you have any comments, recommend topics or guests, you can reach out to me at anthony at pintocapitalinvestments.com and we can connect. That's all I have, folks. Catch you next time on the Lessons in Real Estate Show.